Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Putin's Russia versus Ukraine. On February 24th, 2022, Russian President Vladimir Putin launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. He intended to quickly subjugate the entire country. That, of course, didn't happen. Ukraine, backed by a global alliance, fought back. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians and Russians have died, and tens of millions of people have been displaced. Energy markets have been disrupted. Diplomatic relationships have been reordered. Western Europe has rearmed, and NATO has been revitalized. Punishing sanctions have been imposed on Russia, but strangling its economy has been difficult. Still, Putin's war machine has been exposed as disastrously inept. He's threatened to use nuclear weapons if necessary. To take stock of all of this, we're joined by Stephen Kotkin. Steve is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, where we're having this conversation today. He is the author of an epic and definitive biography of Joseph Stalin, and he's widely regarded as one of our foremost experts on Russia, its history, culture, and economy. Hi, Steve. Great to see you, Tim. Thank you for the invitation. I wanted to ask you, given you know, how long you've watched all of these contemporary events unfold, were you surprised that Putin invaded Ukraine? It was certainly not a complete surprise. The surprise was the fact that he had other options to exert pressure, and he didn't use them. So, for example, he could have tried to crash Ukraine's economy and get them to try uncle. He could have tried covert ops and done some damage and said, I might have to do more if you don't come to the negotiating table. There were other ways that he could have figured out how to apply some pressure to try to get what he wanted. But it turned out his appetites were greater than most of us understood them to be. He wanted everything. He wanted to take the country. He wanted to roll NATO back to its pre-1997 borders. He had a kind of crazy apocalyptic view of what he might achieve. Of course, all of this at Ukraine's expense. So you never know the intentions. You know the capabilities. You can see what they have, you can assess what they have, you can assess where they might be strong, where they might be weak, but what are they actually going to do? And since it's one guy making the decisions, it was hard to understand for sure what might happen. Bill Burns at the CIA knew more about what Putin was going to do than the number two or three guy in Putin's defense ministry, because he didn't tell them. He kept it very close to the vest. Only two or three people, four maximum, were involved. And he made the decision by himself. So the fact that he didn't use 
his capabilities to reduce his risks, lower his costs, and to try to get his gains that way. I think that was somewhat of a surprise. But, of course, the bigger surprise was Ukraine. Before we move on to Ukraine, though, why do you think Putin went that route? You mentioned this apocalyptic view he has of of Ukraine and the West and probably Russia's position in the world more broadly that all played into this. But I'm putting words in your mouth. Why do you think he decided to launch a war rather than prosecute a war through other means? We don't know, and I don't know. That's something that he's going to have to answer for. But war is often started out of desperation. The perception that you're losing something that you value, that it's drifting away from you, that time is not on your side, that if you don't go now, you'll never get the chance to go again. The door will slam shut. And so it's possible, once again, I don't know, it's possible he saw Ukraine slipping away and that he was never going to have a better time to try to reverse that. And so ironically, it was the fact that Ukraine was leaving his grasp in his mind, potentially, more quickly or potentially even forever that made him attempt such an apocalyptic approach. People speculate, well, maybe it was because the West was so weak and the West was going to just roll over and it was dependent on him in energy terms and therefore there was no way they could really resist him and they hadn't really resisted his 2014 violent seizure and annexation of Crimea. And maybe the Joe Biden administration didn't impress him very much and the withdrawal of Afghanistan potentially emboldened him and all of these other speculations, some of which could certainly have a basis in truth, feed into this. But what we do know from his public statements, and he made frequent public statements in the run-up to the war and since he's launched it, he was obsessed with Ukraine and still is. Deep, profound obsession with Ukraine. He talks about how Ukraine doesn't exist. Ukraine is not a nation. Ukraine is really just a fake state, a state created solely to try to unravel Russia. In other words, it's a dagger pointed at Russia. It's not real. Ukrainians are really just Russians. They're not actually Ukrainians. And so this seems to be at the core of his thinking because this is all he talks about when he talks about the war before the war and after the war. So if you start thinking about the NATO expansion arguments and you start thinking about how the U.S. is sometimes blamed for the war, you have to say to yourself, if he's speaking and writing, he actually wrote historical essays about Ukraine that he published under his own name. When did he publish those essays? Yeah, he's done quite a number of historical essays about World War II and Russia's role in the war and the Nazi-Soviet pact and who's responsible for starting the war and was Russia really on the offense? Was it actually an ally of Hitler? And then the Ukrainian nation. Is the Ukrainian nation for real? So in the Russian imagination from the empire days, 
there was a great Russian nation and then two smaller related nations, white Russians, which is how you translate Belarusia or Belarus, and little Russians, which was their name for Ukrainians. So little Russians and white Russians and great Russians are a single family in the sort of 18th century Russian empire understanding of ethnicity. And let's remember, people had religious identity back then, not national or ethnic identity predominantly. Over time, however, you get a Ukrainian nation, you get a Ukrainian people, and that consciousness, ironically, is something that he's done more than anybody else to consolidate and to westernize, achieving the exact opposite of his name. His aims were to destroy this idea of a Ukrainian nation. And now he's consolidated it, not only for all time, but in a pro-Western, anti-Russian fashion. So that's something that even Stalin didn't achieve with his murderous regime. And so this obsession with Ukraine, this idea that Ukraine was not really a country, not really a people, just part of Russia, belonged to Russia, Russia deserved to control it. This seems to be, if we take his public speeches and writings at face value, this seems to be the core of what he was thinking. In addition to him launching an invasion no one expected him to, he put an army on the ground that has turned out to be almost laughably inept. I don't think anyone thinks that this is going necessarily to continue on that path, although it might. But were you surprised at how poorly prosecuted and ineffective his army was when the war launched? Well, you know, once again, many people did expect him to launch the war, right? The CIA got this right. They had tremendous insight into what was going on in his very narrow regime. So let's give credit to the intelligence people for figuring this out. They shared the insight, the intel in real time, and it went a long way to helping form the coalition that opposed Putin with the sanctions and everything else. And we did think that it was possible. We just thought he had cleverer options in the toolkit, let's say with covert ops and applying pressure that way to try to collapse the Ukrainian regime. So with the full-scale invasion that we have that you just referred to in February 2022, February 24th, right? It was actually a coup, not an invasion. Let's send in our best guys from Belarus, very close to Kiev, lightning raid, coup, capture the capital, grab the airport, then we can land our paratroopers at the airport who could then provide the security perimeter around our coup in the capital. And it all goes up in smoke, but it's a closely run thing. They come close to seizing the capital. There's fire outside the presidential palace. It's not clear that Zelensky's going to survive this. He's talking to the Americans and the Europeans on Zoom and other media about how this might be the last time he talks to them. That wasn't actually bluff and hyperbole, but it fails. The Ukrainians resist successfully. And then you end up once again with an invasion and, and an occupation. And it fails because the Ukrainians fight back in a surprisingly robust way. Is that the key factor in all of that? Yes. The Ukrainians, their valor and their ingenuity 
on the battlefield is breathtaking, inspiring, that combination, right? The breathtaking combination of not just the courage, but the ingenuity of how they fight. And ingenuity enabled, by the way, by intelligence briefings they're getting from the West, by support they're getting from the West to prosecute the war. They have their own intel also. Let's be honest, they get their own intel, but yes, we certainly help them. Zelensky has a very modern communications equipment that President Biden might recognize for his when he's speaking to Western interlocutors and his own people. They get off-the-shelf drones, $99 drones, the kinds that you can buy in Walmart or off Amazon, and they hook up a catapult and a grenade to it. That's done in people's basements. They do some programming and some coding. These are kids we're talking about. The 20-somethings, and in some cases the teens in Ukraine, are helping to fight the war. The whole Russian new economy, their internet economy, their 20-somethings, they flee. They don't want any part of this. So Russia's fighting without the tech, without the modern economy, without the 20-year-olds, because those people flee to Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, right? Armenia is second per capita globally to Silicon Valley in IT workers now. I did not know that. That's fascinating because of the exodus from Russia. None of them are helping the Russian war effort. No, they're against it. They're either indifferent to it and trying to escape it, or they're actually trying to help the Ukrainians fight it. But the Ukrainians have all these people volunteering their ingenuity and know-how, and at great risk of their own lives, they're doing this. So that's been very interesting. We saw that. But let's remember, the Ukrainians, we knew that they were serious people before the war, because twice in our lifetime, 2003 and 4, Orange Revolution, and 2014, they overthrew domestic tyrants who tried to, through fraudulent elections, stay in power. And they came out in the streets and risked their lives against their own tyrants. So when the invasion came, we understood that they would resist. Maybe we didn't understand the full extent, I'll speak for myself here, their ability to resist in the war effort. But we were pretty sure there would be, at a minimum, an insurgency against the Russian occupation, even if Russia was successful in taking the capital, that the Ukrainians wouldn't give up. But more than that, they prevented Russia from taking the capital. That was the great victory that they won early in the war that did surprise themselves in some cases, and certainly the Russians and certainly the rest of the world. This is one thing that the CIA didn't get correct, was the ability of the Ukrainians to hold their capital, hold the Russian occupation at bay. Having said that, however, Ukraine is not winning the war. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Let's stay for a minute on this idea of unexpected developments or surprises. I think one of the other unexpected developments in this, I think, was the cohesion within the West. Who would have thought that we'd be talking about rearming both Japan and Germany? That was probably unimaginable as recently as three or four years ago. Now it's essentially a fait accompli. What do you think of that piece of all of this? also remarkable and also crucially important. I've always been of the opinion that the West 
is by far more powerful than people understand. And the West is not a geographical term. The West is an institutional and values proposition. So yes, it's North America. Yes, it's Europe. But it's also the first island chain in the Pacific, in East Asia, right? It's South Korea. It's Taiwan. It's Japan. All the way down to Australia. That's also the West, right? Japan is not European, but it's Western. And Russia is European, but it's not Western. Mm -hmm because this is an institutional matrix. It's rule of law, it's open society, it's open dynamic market economy, it's elections that are real rather than fraudulent or non-existent like in the Chinese case. So this is the collective West. It was easy to see it was powerful, but it looked like it was dormant. It looked like cappuccinos were more important than freedom, but when challenged, when there's a criminal aggression right there in Europe, countries bordering Ukraine are in the EU, part of the West. When that happened, the West sprung to action. It was Ukrainian valor plus Russian atrocities. That's my equation. Ukrainian valor plus Russian atrocities equals Western unity and resolve. I said this early on, it's going our way. Because it's not that the Russians are committing atrocities. The whole war is an atrocity. They bomb schools. The Germans will send weapons. They bomb hospitals. The Germans will send heavy weapons. They start raping children, not just women, but girls. And the Germans are going to send tanks. Right? So this Ukrainian valor plus... Russian atrocities equals Western unity and resolve has only gotten stronger and stronger and stronger over the course of the war. And everyone's been predicting at some point it's going to go soft. At some point, the West is going to say, oh, well, you know, those cappuccinos are really more important. But that hasn't happened, despite the predictions. On the contrary, they weaned themselves from Russian energy in a much shorter period of time than any of us understood was possible. So that actually allows us to segue into, you know, maybe the second prong of the offensive against Russia. We've talked a little bit about the military piece of this. Let's talk about economic sanctions. You and I had a conversation about that shortly after the war began. And you said that people were focusing largely on the wrong things yes. when we looked at sanctions on Russia, that the most deadly and effective sanctions we could impose would have been technological sanctions, and that that wasn't really being fully and robustly conceived. Talk to me a little bit about that. So I was a skeptic about sanctions, as you know, before the war and after the war. This is the single biggest mistake that we made, and it's why... Ukraine is not winning the war right now. What we did with the sanctions, and that would include SWIFT, would include freezing the assets of Russian central banks. When you say SWIFT, you're talking about blocking Russian access to the global banking system, essentially, and transfer payments. Yes, some Russian banks not being able to use the communication system SWIFT, which is really just a messaging system, but is nonetheless the one that all banks use. And then freezing, not confiscating, but freezing Russian central bank assets that were held in Western countries, and some of the other things that happened, 
companies voluntarily pulling out of Russia. The problem with all of this is it didn't work the way we hoped it would work, which was to say crush the Russian economy and crush the Russian will to fight. So in a war, the will to fight and the capability to fight are the targets, not territory. You can gain territory, you can lose territory. If the other side is still willing to fight and still capable of fighting, you didn't get anything by taking territory back. And so we haven't crushed his will to fight, nor his capability to fight. And in fact, they had massive financial reserves built up in case they needed him. At some point, Putin had been planning to build a kind of fortress wall of money around Russia long before this war began. What the sanctions did was they strengthened the regime and they annihilated the private sector and the opposition. The private sector and the opposition, that was our friend. The oligarchs who supposedly were in bed with Putin, that was our friend. We wanted Russians to peel off from Putin. Putin's strength is conflation. Putin equals Russia, conflating his personal regime, his personal dictatorship with the country. So he says Russia's under threat. Russia could collapse. He's talking about his personal regime. He's talking about his personal dictatorship is under threat. Russia's not under threat. But what we did was enable, strengthen actually that conflation. Instead of separating Putin from Russia, we're canceling Bolshoi appearances. We're canceling Tolstoy in universities and, and high schools. We're canceling Russia across the board, and we're giving Russians nowhere else to go except the Putin regime or exile where they can't use credit cards because they're Russian citizens and they're blocked from the payment system. So, you know, this absolutely crazy thing that we did was to enable Putin to realize his dream. Everyone is more dependent on him than ever. The oligarchs have to run to him rather than run to us because we sanction them, because we freeze their assets, because only Putin is safety for them now. And so we did this across the board. Instead of differentiating, instead of deconflating, instead of separating, instead of opening up a space for defection so that you could be patriotic, loyal to Russia. You could be proud to be Russian, but you could be anti-war. You could say this war is a criminal aggression. The Putin regime should go. And this is not Russia. This is Putin. That was the strategy that we needed from the beginning. But the sanctions, unfortunately, which are understandable at an emotional level, because it's a criminal aggression, we're not going to risk direct U.S. or NATO confrontation with Russia on the battlefield. So sanctions looks like the best or the only option left there to confront Russia. Arm Ukraine and try to destroy Russia's fighting capability with sanctions. But it was a political era of colossal magnitude. But I just want to push back on that thought for a little bit because the sanctions that have been imposed may take time to work their way through the Russian economy. Is part of the problem here that people were expecting sanctions to have a more immediate impact than they ever could have? 
And if we can wait it out, that this could end up cutting off some of the oxygen to the Russian economy? Technological controls, controls on tech export, always take a long time. That's always a generational thing. And so we understood that because we practiced that. The big bang shock and awe sanctions that Treasury came up with, which were meant to collapse the regime or at least collapse the will to fight and maybe even the ability to fight. That was the expectation. People now say, oh, we didn't expect that. You know, they're backing off of what the motivations were. But certainly the motivations were shock and awe, knock Russia off balance, and make them unable to fight. But here's your problem. Once again, wars of attrition, that's what we're in here, right? All wars begin as wars of maneuver. Somebody attacks, things move really quickly, territory is taken. If they're victorious, sometimes you get the insurgency against their victory, like what happened in Iraq. If they're not victorious, you get the war of attrition, and then it's, I outproduce you. My willpower stays, and my production stays, increases, and your production decreases. Well, we're not bombing Russian production facilities. They're producing at least 60 missiles a month now. And that's with the sanctions. 60 missiles a month, not including what they're buying from Iran, what they're buying from North Korea, what they went to Africa and scooped up that they originally sold to the Africans and now rebought, or, God forbid, what they might get from the Chinese, right? So just on their own steam, they got enough to hit Ukraine twice a month forever into the foreseeable future with these barrages of missiles. What about on our side? No increase of production at all. And so ironically, who's the one running out of stuff to fight the war. It's us. It's not the Russians. And so here we are in a war of attrition where it's about our stuff increasing, their stuff decreasing. Their stuff is not decreasing and our stuff is not increasing. So sure, maybe 25 years from now, maybe 15 years from now, Russia has some trouble because of export technology controls more state-of-the-art missiles or whatever it might be. And in the meantime, Ukrainians are being murdered and raped and kidnapped on the battlefield, and we don't have enough stuff for them. So on that happy note of thinking about how hard it is to supply a war effort, I want to take a break. We'll hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're back with Steve Kotkin. I was first introduced to Steve in 1999 after I returned from a reporting trip to Moscow for the New York Times. I've looked to him for guidance on all things Russian ever since, and I'm happy to be continuing our conversation today. Steve, let's zoom back in on Putin for a minute. He's 70. He appears to be fit as a fiddle. 
So he could be at this for a very long time, couldn't he? The solution here would be some type of defection from his regime. Not democratic opposition that's in exile, but his people inside his regime peeling off because they were Russian patriots and they didn't like the way this was going. And the West was accommodating a Russian patriotism that was anti-war, non-Putin Russian patriotism. That's still the game. A good outcome here would be an armistice where Ukraine does not agree that territory Russia controls is legally Russian. So no necessary peace treaty, no agreement to annexations, no legalization of the criminal invasion, but an armistice to stop the fighting. Once you get an armistice, you have a DMZ. You're going to need a demilitarized zone with Russia and Ukraine, no matter what the outcome of the war is, because Russia is actually not going anywhere. South Korea is your victory here. If you get something like South Korea out of this, sure, it's disappointing. It's not a peace treaty. It's just an armistice. They're actually still at war on the Korean Peninsula. Nonetheless, South Korea has been a great outcome. If Ukraine could have an outcome like that. And so how did we get the South Korean outcome? Stalin died. That's how we got the armistice in the war. <laughs> so if Putin doesn't die, Tim, we need to unravel that regime with defections and get another Russia that we can bargain with and deal with. Isn't the easiest outcome in all of this if Putin were to die, but no Why? one can get to Putin? No. Well, you can try. I wouldn't recommend it. He's in a cocoon. He's got a 30,000 member Praetorian Guard, multiple layers of security. He's in this vast, deep cocoon. Almost nobody has any access to him. And the people who have access to him are loyal. There's been no defection or disaffection in that group, that Praetorian Guard. So those are his IT people, his cooks, his cleaners, right? Those people are vetted. Those people are watched closely. And those people are not allowing you to penetrate the regime. It could happen, but this is what he does, right? He suppresses all political alternatives and he obsesses about security. So it would be fabulous if he were to die from natural causes and the war would end. Short of that, you're going to need some type of unraveling of the regime, which is not happening. There's no evidence that it's happening right now. Because let's be honest, you think you might oppose Putin and you're going to have to talk to other people about that. You can't do it yourself. The first person you tell, let's get together and undo this Putin thing, that person's going to run immediately to Putin and knock on you to save their own life, protect themselves, because they're worried that there's eavesdropping. It could be a test of their loyalty. And so they're going to run immediately to Putin. So internal dynamics of this regime, building trust to undo the regime is really hard. You got to do that with a government in exile. You got to take a bunch of Russians in London and make them your government. And so when you have the Munich Security Conference and you don't invite Russians because they're just going to come and spew propaganda. Well, here's Russians you can invite to the Munich Security Conference or fill in the blank of where you might invite them to EU meetings, to G7 meetings, to G20 meetings, right? 
you have to begin to build the idea of another Russia that Russian nationalists can defect to as long as it's ending the war. Let's remember, if Putin's overthrown in a coup, Tim, there's no guarantee that a capitulationist leader replaces him. Maybe you get an escalatory leader. So your goal is not Russians who are going to be members of the Democratic Party in the United States and align with those values. Your goal is Russians who can be whatever they want because you're pluralist in your values and you're pluralist in allowing whatever politics, but they're anti-war. They're for ending the war. They're for granting an armistice to Ukraine. They're for stopping the murder, stopping the kidnapping, the destruction of Ukrainian cultural artifacts. Someone else has to come into the picture to destabilize that regime so that there's the imagination in the Russian mind of political alternatives to Putin. There's a future for Russia. Russians can be proud of their civilization, their culture, their country, but the war has to stop. And if we don't get there, Tim, then it's a wing and a prayer right now that we outproduce them somehow and that they don't continue to produce those weapons that they're using on the battlefield. Because, you see, Ukraine, they need their country, Tim. They don't have another country. So if Ukraine gets wrecked, that's not victory. Even if they hold their capital, even if they hold territory, even if they take back some of the territory that the Russians have, the Russians are destroying Ukraine, infrastructure, people, culture. Russia has its own country. Russia's country is a thousand times the size of the parts of Ukraine that they're occupying. They don't actually need Ukraine. If Putin wrecks Ukraine, who wins that? Do the Ukrainians win or do the Russians win, right? So for Putin, I can't have Ukraine. Nobody can have Ukraine. Do you think that Putin would use nukes? He has the capability. You have to take seriously that he has the capability. There's many, many arguments about mutually assured destruction, otherwise known as MAD. The problem with those arguments is that they're true until the second they're not true. So sure, it makes no sense, but then it could happen. I've often thought that when he threatens to use nukes, he's bluffing. Every time he's threatened fire and brimstone from the beginning, he hasn't acted on those threats when we've crossed those lines. He said, if you supply them with weapons, you're going to get a response like you've never seen before in history. And then nothing happens. So you start to see this crying wolf phenomenon and you start to think, we can do what we want because he's never going to actually use those weapons of mass destruction. But once again, the problem is he's got them. So you can't just ignore that fact. Yeah, it would be crazy if he did it. And he could do it. So we have to tiptoe along that line and cautious. I'm of the opinion that if he uses tactical nukes in Ukraine, that that's the quickest path to Ukrainian military victory on the battlefield. Why? Because NATO gets directly involved with conventional forces and wipes out Russian forces and weapons on Ukrainian soil, wipes out the Russian occupation, because it has to react. One of the things about this threshold of not wanting to get involved 
directly U.S. or NATO forces against Russian forces on the battlefield is there's no domestic political support for that, as I said, and there's no support in the alliance and their domestic populations. And we live in a democracy and foreign policy has to be rooted in majority public opinion to be enduring sustainable over time. But if he were to do the unthinkable, the crazy, what he could do to use the tactical nuclear weapons, that would change the opinion situation in the U.S. and in the NATO alliance and potentially make it more popular or indeed very popular to respond in some significant fashion. It could go the other way. It could go that it unravels the coalition and people say, okay, now that he's using nukes, stop. I've had enough with fighting this. But it could ironically be the case once again that he steps on the rake here. You started out talking about all the things he hoped to accomplish and he's accomplishing the opposite, perverse and unintended consequences. Okay, with visions of mushroom clouds dancing in our heads, Steve and I are going to take a break, listen to one of our sponsors, and then we'll come right back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're back with Steve Kotkin, one of our foremost Russian authorities and scholars. Steve, you've often described Russia to me as episodically powerful. It was powerful under Peter the Great. It was powerful under Stalin, but that it's a relatively weak superpower overall. Do Putin and Russia come out of this conflict in Ukraine weakened ultimately, do you think, or no? This war is about their weakness, not their strength. This is a strategy of a failing country, not a succeeding country. Russia wants to be in the first rank of powers. It wants to be deciding the fate of Europe, European security. It wants to be astride the world the way it is at the UN with a permanent veto in the Security Council. Why does Russia love the UN? Because everywhere else, Russia is just another country. But at the UN, it's a permanent member of the Security Council with a veto, which it earned by defeating Hitler's land army on the Eastern Front in World War II, let's remember. And so its aspirations are to be a power of the first rank, and its capabilities have never been that, ever. Not because they're not a powerful country. They are a powerful country. But there are other powerful countries, and all power is relative. And so there's this thing called the United States. And the United States has built this amazing system of alliances, this incredible open sphere of influence, which is economic and security and soft power and just breathtaking. And they're up against that. So they're a great power, right? You can probably play soccer. And if you played against the five-year-olds that were running outside my house this morning, you might be able to beat them crush them. And then all of a sudden, Lionel Messi will show up on, and then you'll say, oh, this is a different league I'm playing in now. That's been Russia's problem through the ages. 
They can beat the five-year-olds or they can beat the lesser powers, but then they come up against a greater power, in fact, the greatest power. And so this weakness, this cry of anger and resentment, this roiling cauldron of wanting and not being able to be the greatest power in the world, again and again, Russia tries to overcome this weakness. And again and again, it backfires. And so Putin has now produced a worse strategic situation for Russia than the one he was complaining about. And this is not something that he's done alone. This is a pattern in Russian history. I call this the geopolitical conundrum that Russia faces. Too much geopolitics, too much aspiration, not matching capabilities, too much trying to leap and overcome the chasm and ending up in a worse situation time and time again. What does he do then? Does he accept defeat or does he decide he won't accept defeat? And that's a question, fortunately, you and I don't have to answer. But there's somebody sitting in a big chair in the White House who's got to think about that question. Since you brought up the White House, tell me what kind of grades would you give the Biden administration for prosecuting this war? A government is graded on a curve. You know, in academia, that's where you can get a low score numerically, but still get a decent letter grade because everybody gets a low score and your low score is a little higher than theirs. So we grade government on a curve. We have expectations that government is hard. There's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of things that government is all thumbs. I would say that very good on building the coalition, very good on maintaining support for the war for more than a year now, very good, in other words, at latching on to Ukrainian valor and courage and making the most of it. Not so good on figuring out what victory could look like and how we could get to victory and how we could not push all the Russians into Putin's lap, but instead separate them from Putin. So on some of the big things, high scores, and on one of the biggest things, a low score, but Government is a lot harder than sitting here in the tower at Stanford University at the Hoover Institution talking about what the grade might be. Not just sitting in any part of the tower. Your, your office happens to be Herbert Hoover's old study, right? Yes, I'm very lucky that way. Tell me something you've learned from watching this war unfold. We, we always want to end on a learning note on this show and what we can learn from collisions crash course is both instructive and a learning moment. So tell me what you've learned that's new to you in, in watching this war. Sadly, I've learned many things I already knew, that the world is full of evil, that war is still a problem, happens. It's not something that is, let's say, rare. I've also learned that the West, rather than one worldism, is the basis of our security and prosperity. So the GATT rather than the WTO, NATO, the EU, and the first island chain, rather than Kumbaya. Those are all things that I thought before that have been strengthened with this war. The biggest thing I got wrong is I expected another part of the world to blow up while this was happening. I expected other countries to take advantage of the situation. 
whether that would be something happening with Iran, something happening with North Korea, with China. I expected maybe it wouldn't even be in a place that I was paying attention to. So one bad thing happens and it's not an isolated event. It's a potential trigger for other bad things to happen in an unraveling. So far, that's not been the case. I predicted that that would happen, and I've been wrong about that, fortunately. So let's hope I continue to be wrong about that going forward, because it's enough already trying to resolve this criminal aggression against Ukraine. Steve, we're out of time. I appreciate you sitting with me today, and I'm going to come back and pester you again sometime in the future. Tim, always great to talk to you. You can find Stephen Kotkin's book, Stalin, Paradoxes of Power, and Stalin, Waiting for Hitler, the first two volumes of a three-part biography of Joseph Stalin, wherever books are sold. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that no matter how forceful our military response to Putin's invasion might be, and how tightly we draw the financial noose around the Russian economy, Vladimir Putin and his war may be with us for a very long time. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vanden Bylard. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.